0: My name is Jill, and welcome to The Void, the show where I have an existential crisis in public, and call it a podcast. I wanted to talk to you about something. So, last week I ordered an Uber because I like to pretend I'm not one salmon bagel away from financial ruin. And when I got in the car, my driver asked me if it's okay if there wasn't any music because the radio wasn't working. I said that's fine, I was on my way to a friend with kids anyway, so I was going to enjoy those last minutes of silence. No kids, he asked. I said, no. Do you want them? He asked, which is normally totally rude. But in this context, I somehow didn't mind. I said, no, um, I'm too ethically torn about it. You'll change your mind. Children are fun. They are the jewels of life. And again, I don't always mind when people uh, say stuff like this. It just depends on the context and I guess my mood. So I asked him if jewels couldn't just be the jewels of life. He said, no. I said, okay silence. But I'm a curious person, so I asked him, what are the other two jewels? He said a good partner and money. That sounds pretty externalized. Wouldn't a jewel of life be more like a literal jewel, like something you wear on your person? I feel like the biggest jewel of life is our understanding of our own role in it, understanding that if you want fulfillment, you need to become someone who knows how to be fulfilled, that sort of thing. I was met with silence. That's my cue to shut the hell up, I thought. And I proceeded to stare out the window at what can only be described as an aggressively suburban-looking area. Are you religious? He asked after quite a bit of silence and seemingly out of nowhere. No. But you do believe in something, right? No. Really? Why not? Why would I? I said. To which he answered, eternal life. Now I met him with silence because those two words triggered a lot of thoughts. Thoughts about how having to see every fashion trend come back for the rest of eternity would be my personal hell. Thoughts about how eternal life sounds like an exercise in absolute futility. Isn't this life enough? I asked. But we suffer here. We fall on hard times. We struggle. And if we surrender, we can live on after death. We'll feel no pain, no fear, no anger, no sadness, just happiness. And the more we suffer here, the more we'll be rewarded. Those images of paradise you see on those pamphlets that could easily double as communist propaganda, you know the ones. Flashed in front of my eyes. Images of children hugging lions, skipping rope under rainbows, doing a meet and greet with Jesus and having lunch in the grass. The same grass that covers the rotting corpses of non-believers. I get why people would want to go there though, even if it's just to finally get a break from paying rent but to me, none of those images feel good. The oppressive brightness, the maniacal happiness, it just made me think of that movie Midsommar, which is not something I would associate with pleasantness. But when I snapped out of it, I asked him slightly confused what the point would be of an existence like that. Happiness, he answered succinctly. I could have left it at that, I really could have, so of course I didn't. But isn't happiness only a thing because we know what a lack of it looks like? The only thing that makes life meaningful is that it ends, so without any contrast, wouldn't prancing in a field with lions just feel empty and meaningless? It is what it is, he said. Eyes firmly fixed on the road now. Okay, this sounds like a four-hour car ride. I promise you it wasn't. Normally, believers and non-believers have difficulties talking to each other because believers have a hard time trusting anyone who doesn't believe in God and non-believers have a hard time trusting anyone who does. But any sense of intellectual superiority on either side is just a sign of a glaring lack of self-awareness, in my opinion. Because if you think about it, atheism and theism are different sides of the same coin. They're both a symptom of not having answers, and feeling like we do helps us cope with the fear of the great unknown. He who shall not be named. No, I'm just kidding. Death. Absolutely death. We have a lot of other fancy defense mechanisms to avoid dealing with our own impending doom. It's no coincidence that we, as a society, worship youth and pretend old people don't exist. And with old people, I mean women over 30. Or why we tend to party a little too hard, shop a little too much, or watch a little too much Netflix to distract ourselves from our own lives, and thus our own deaths. Death anxiety even determines how traumatic events will impact us, and how effective therapy will be. The only upside of this fear, however, is that it motivates us to find meaning in life, which makes us indirectly more pro-social. It won't surprise you to hear that most people protect themselves from death anxiety by being religious, because naturally my Uber driver will be less scared of death if he thinks he'll live forever. But what might surprise you is that not being religious does the exact same thing for atheists. To us, not believing in anything actually keeps our death anxiety away, the same way believing keeps it away for theists. Research on this is limited, but the studies that have been done suggest that both religious and non-religious people have less death anxiety and thus better mental health than agnostics or people who otherwise fall in the middle of the spectrum and aren't sure what they believe. This implies three things. That religious people probably have more death anxiety from the get-go, which turns them to religion in the first place. Thus, fear motivates accepting religion, and religion in turn mitigates the fear. And it sustains itself this way. The more scared you are, the more religious you become. So it's a match made in heaven. Pun intended. Non-religious people are probably less fearful from the get-go, which gives them no reason to seek out religion. Strength of conviction seems more important, way more important than what someone is convinced of when it comes to dealing with the fear of death. That conviction being shaken in any way, so forcing atheists to write an essay about the existence of God and theists to write an essay about the non-existence of God, slightly increased death anxiety in both groups. Okay, so we now know that religious people are more likely to be fearful and thus become more religious when faced with death anxiety. But atheists becoming more fearful when confronted with the possible existence of God is interesting. It implies atheists might be more God-fearing than religious folk. I mean in the literal sense. For me personally, that is correct. Because the idea of both a God and an afterlife are mortifying to me. An absolute horror show. I feel very visceral terror when I think about it. (laughs) Let me try to put it into words. Okay, so let's say God is 100% proven to be real and the lying petting shall commence. I can't stop mentioning the lying thing. It's just my favorite paradise illustration cliche. But okay, let's say paradise exists. What does being human even mean? or look like, without having access to our entire spectrum of emotions? What does being human mean if we're stuck at one age for the rest of eternity? If there's no learning to do, no flaws to manage, no growing that can happen and no experiences to live, what is the whole point of an afterlife if it's even more pointless than this one? And okay, to the Bible's credit, it says that believers will remember their lives on Earth so that they can fully revel in God's glory. But if our memories are completely devoid of emotions, they have no strength. So you can't be extra thankful for paradise because you might remember not always having been there. But you don't remember the feeling of not always having been there. So an eternity without contrast and with oppressive brightness and maniacal happiness 24-7 sounds like an absolute hellscape to me. Like I said before... That's literally why Midsommar works so well as a horror movie. Because around-the-clock happiness is not a natural state for humans to be in. If I had to break down the function of emotion, I would say emotions are a way for us to gauge social situations. Just like the weather is a gauge for understanding the climate in your country. So happiness, just like every other emotion, is meant to come and go. What are we even if we're stuck in one state forever? I understand why people might find this comforting, but it gives me the absolute freaking creeps. And then there's God. How anyone can not be scared of the idea of such an entity existing is beyond me. I'll explain. The qualities that make God God are omniscience, being all-knowing, omnipotence, being able to do everything, omnipresence, being everywhere at the same time, and omnibenevolence, being endlessly loving. So what freaks me out about the concept of God is that if God is all those things, as described by the Bible, if he sees the state the world is in but can't do anything about it, he's not omnipotent and therefore not God. If he does see the state of the world and can do something about it but doesn't want to, he's not omnibenevolent, and thus not God. You see the, the issue here? It's a paradox. God, as described by the Bible, can only exist with our world being in its current state if he simply doesn't care about it. Now, how is that not horrifying? Honestly, if the Bible said God thought it'd be cool to make humans because he likes power and that he cares more about being worshipped than about the people who do the worshipping, I would be more inclined to believe in a God. Because, in my opinion, we live in a world that reflects that. And it's interesting how the concept of Satan doesn't elicit any of the same horror in me. In fact, I don't understand why he gets such a bad rap. Mainly because he has no power without God. He can't do anything without God's permission. And at least his motives are clear to me. He's simply doing what he was made to do. In the case of God, however, his motivations are completely unclear to me. And thus the choices he makes are quite erratic. Think about how he sacrificed his only son so everyone could be forgiven for their sins, even though he himself created the concept of sin and thus could have saved us from them without killing his kid. And why did Mary need to carry Jesus? He's God. He could legit make baby Jesus appear in a cradle anywhere, but instead he chose a young newly married girl, impregnated her without her consent, and turned her entire life around. And side note, if you needed any more proof that if God existed, there is no way he would be a woman, just remember, he made Mary go to pregnancy, labor, and childbirth when he didn't have to. I rest my case. In my opinion, God's lack of concrete motivation is what makes him terrifying to me. This willy-nilliness is perfectly illustrated in the story of Job. In case you don't know the story, here's the story. Okay, so Satan randomly shows up in heaven to hang out with God, which is, you know, what? God starts boasting to Satan about this cool follower he has. Job is a stand-up guy with a lot of money and cattle and kids. And Job's overall just a pleasant human who believes in God. So Satan cynically says, he's probably only good because you blessed the crap out of him. You want to bet that if I tortured him, he'll turn on you? And God was like, Okay. Deal, let's do it. You can do whatever you want to him, just don't kill him, okay? First of all, excuse me, pure horror. Horror! And second of all, this entire interaction captures why, A, Satan is not as much of an enemy as you think, considering he can pop in and out of heaven like it ain't no thing. I bet he helps himself to snacks from the fridge while he's there. And second of all, this Interaction also perfectly captures why I don't think the existence of a god who has no trouble inflicting suffering over a bet is a good thing. In the universe where this absolutely happened, remember that Job buried every single one of his 10 kids over a bet he himself did not even make. Now, that's pretty damn brutal. I could name at least 50 other reasons why, in my opinion, the existence of a god would be the worst-case scenario, because he is unpredictable in a way that the void is not. And I personally find the idea that my soul, using quotation marks, because I don't believe in a soul, I don't think our brain receives consciousness from a different source. I think it creates consciousness. But anyway, I personally find the idea that my soul won't be in the hands of someone whose choices make so little sense to me very comforting. I like the idea of this life being enough. Of there being so much wonder in the things we can see that we don't even have to focus on the things we can't. It's almost ungrateful to be so concerned about what comes after this, when you're surrounded by little specks of paradise every day, if you just look. I get that death is a scary subject, but I'm all for talking about it. Because the awful, beautiful, incredibly ruthless truth about your life is that when you came into this world, your unlimited potential was born next to your certain death. The moment you took your first breath, the clock started ticking, and the Reaper has been following you around like a Mary Kay sales rep ever since. Death is as natural as being born and having sex and somehow always picking the slowest line at the grocery store. And not accepting that is, just like the idea of eternal life, an exercise in futility. I would describe my views on my own death as stoic in the sense that I'm neutral towards it. I like to meditate on death because it's the only thing I'm certain will happen and it seems kind of idiotic to know about a thing your entire life and then act brand new when confronted with it. I don't only remember my death on an almost daily basis but I try to sit with it harmoniously because how I see it to fear death is to fear life in a way and I refuse to fear anything. Epicurus is a great philosopher when it comes to death acceptance, and I think he sums up my attitude the best. Death does not concern us, because as long as we exist, death is not here, and when it does come, we no longer exist. I could honestly go on about death, because I think there's beauty in accepting it, and I think there's also a lot of freedom in accepting death. Yeah, I sound like such a a creep. It's just, I do not want to pretend like it's a a surprise. I'm not scared of death. And that makes me feel more alive than anything. Unlike my Uber driver, I don't believe in meaningful suffering. But you know, I hope he's right about paradise. May he experience it in this life. So I want to leave you with this question. How much do you fear the Reaper? I wish I could play that Blue Oyster Cult song so badly right now. If you're listening to this podcast, go to listentothevoid.com to find show notes. You can also find links to my socials on there. And if you're watching this, find both the sources I used and links to all my socials in the description bar. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, consider subscribing. Our time on earth is finite, but my gratitude for you spending a couple of those minutes with me is not. Thank you.